We're reading from Matthew chapter 21 from the beginning. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread out their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what the children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. Thanks, Caroline. Good morning again, everybody. So, confronted with death, Crocodile Dundee says, I read the Bible once. You know, God and Jesus and all those apostles, they were all fishermen, just like me. Yep, straight to heaven for Mick Dundee. Yep, me and God, we'd, we'd be mates. Crocodile Dundee's a bit of an oldie now, but I reckon he's uh, maybe still tapping into the sentiment of a lot of Aussies. Most people have some reason for why they reckon they're fine with God, if he exists. They assume it's all good. They're pretty casual about it all. There's a bit of that attitude in our passage this morning. And we want to be careful that we ourselves don't have a bit of it too. A bit too casual about our standing before God. In some cases, the same root attitude can come out in a much worse way. It makes people smug. We'll see a bit of that in the passage this morning too. So, the tensions ratchet up in Matthew's story. Jesus, who has been, up until this point, hiding away up in the boonies, up in Galilee and beyond for 20 whole chapters for his whole ministry, but no more. He strides directly into Jerusalem, pretty much enemy territory, and stakes his claim boldly, publicly. Jesus is king, and the triumphal entry is his bold declaration of power and authority. That's really big because the things that Jesus goes on to do and say in the coming chapters would be incredibly arrogant if this was a guy who had no power or authority. 
Jesus busies himself at the temple for the next five whole chapters, although today we're just looking at this one and a bit of the next one. And his first concern there as king is people's access to God, and he makes quite a scene about it. The elite challenge him, but he dissects their smug, casual attitudes. So that's how we're going to break it down this morning. If you like headings for your notes, if you're a note taker, first, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem as king. Second, Jesus blows apart all the pretensions at the temple, everything getting in the way of people approaching God. And third, this king teaches with authority, showing everyone how they got it all wrong. So first up, the king arrives in Jerusalem. It's the start of a very significant week, Passion Week. Most of us here probably know what happens by the end of it. So does Jesus. He's predicted his own death multiple times at this point. But it's actually this event that very much sets things in motion. This triumphal entry is very much the point of no return. Crossing the Rubicon is a phrase still in use today for those sorts of moments. That's because about 80 years before Jesus, Julius Caesar led his famed 13th Legion across the River Rubicon in violation of the law, and he advanced on Rome. That commenced the civil war which ended the Republic and enthroned Caesar as emperor and God. But our hero, Jesus, he doesn't stride in on a war horse at the head of an army. And he didn't imagine himself a God. Jesus never seizes power and he never smugly presumes upon his authority. He simply is God. His power is part of who he is and his authority is handed to him by God. And yet, even with all of that, he knew he was going to be rejected by his own people, humiliated and executed for the sake of others. And the reason for his execution at the hands of Rome is his claim to kingship. And it's the triumphal entry when he makes that claim boldly, undeniably, publicly. How? Well, the Jewish Messiah, what we call Christ, was to be an all-powerful king who would establish a universal kingdom. Matthew paints a picture for us of Jesus self-consciously fulfilling messianic prophecy and also then perfectly comfortable accepting for himself messianic praises. In verse 1 of this chapter, Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives looking out over Jerusalem. This is where Yahweh stands in Zechariah chapter 14 as he prepares to advance on Jerusalem and wipe out his enemies, the enemies of his people who have overtaken his city. Then uh, we have the whole donkey incident. In verses 2 to 3, it's pretty clear that what's going on is Jesus has made prior arrangements in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9. That's what verses 4 to 5 say. Then in verse 9... No one is confused about what all this means. They praise Jesus as the son of David. Everyone knows the Messiah will be from the line of David. And with the words of the Psalms, they glorify Jesus as the deliverer who comes in the name of Yahweh. We know the crowds will end up turning on Jesus when he fails to be the sort of king that they wanted him to be. But there's something they get right here, and I think we can learn from it. Jesus is a mighty king, and a king is worthy of awe and adoration and allegiance and submission. 
Jesus and me, yeah, we're mates. That's what Crocodile Dundee thought. It's a funny scene. He's not trying to be too profound, so we'll cut him some slack. Maybe your reasons are better. But is that the main or the only way that you relate to Jesus as a mate? Let's be reminded here, as Jesus marches into Jerusalem as king, that he is a king. And kings expect their followers to declare their allegiance, to lay down their lives in obedience and service. Our lives are not our own. He has purchased us at a great price, and it wasn't so we could have one more mate. It's too casual. It takes the Lord of the universe for granted. So Jesus has entered Jerusalem as king, and then in verse 12, his parade finishes up at the temple, the place where Jews have access to God. But what he finds there are barriers, barriers preventing people from accessing their God, parasites and gatekeepers. And so this king's first order of business is to pull that whole order of things down. Jesus knows how to deal with parasites. He turfs them out immediately. He sends the money changers and the pigeon sellers packing. What was their crime? Why did he call them robbers? Well, the devout will want to give money to the temple as part of their worship of God, and that's a good thing. Many of us here partner with the ministry of this church financially. But in those days, visiting the temple, that was a lengthy pilgrimage. They didn't have a local church. So they've traveled far to pay their dues. And in, this day and age, they, in that day and age, they will be traveling with Roman currency, which they then cannot use to give to the temple. These money changers, they're willing to sort that out for a price. They're not a charity, they're rent seekers. They're skimming a profit because their customers at this point have no other choice. You know those charities who have enormous administrative overheads? We all know that's dodgy, we don't want to give to those sorts of charities. Whether it's corruption or incompetence, people's good intentions are being taken advantage of. Imagine if you had to donate just to come into church this morning. And then imagine that Westpac had moved in as the exclusive handler of all of those transactions, and they're taking a 20% cut too. It would be a massive barrier to accessing God and meeting with him here with his people. Jesus hates it. It's gross. Then there's the pigeon sellers, the winged rat, freely available anywhere, anytime. Probably one pooping on someone's car out there right now. Well, God allowed even pigeons to be offered by the poor as sacrifice so that there would never be an economic barrier to being made right with God at the temple. But here they've turned even that into one more commercial transaction. Dealing with personal sin and guilt, that's a vulnerable time, we know that. And these parasites, they know it's the perfect time to squeeze. It's like those mega churches you hear about out of places like Nigeria squeezing the world's absolute poorest people, destitute, so they can buy another private jet. Jesus hates it. This king hates barriers getting between people and God. And so his first order of business in the city as king is to tear them all down. What's the result? Verse 14, the blind and the lame flock to Jesus in the temple. Now, this is significant because in places like 2 Samuel and Leviticus 21, Exactly these sorts of people are actually forbidden 
from access to the temple and from participating in its ministry. But with the arrival of this king, these people know something has changed. They feel welcome at last. And the children as well, carrying on, verse 15, bringing in the crowd's praises of Jesus, Hosanna to the king. So the usual decorum of the temple has been ruined. Procedures are not being followed. And this draws out the gatekeepers, priests and lawyers, here to tick boxes. This is not how things are done around here. You can imagine them saying. It's likely at this point in time that this class of official, temple official, doesn't even believe in the coming of a Messiah. So hearing the children, they ask Jesus, verse 16, do you hear what they are saying? They may as well be saying, can you believe these idiots believe in a Messiah? Jesus barely dignifies them. He invokes the prophets and he basically says, of course I hear what they are saying, but it's not them who are acting like fools. True belief is long gone here. There's no substance, there's no conviction. All that's left to gatekeepers is excluding people, making sure only the right sorts get in and only the right sorts of things go on in this place. So that's what Jesus begins by confronting when he arrives in the temple. We're gonna have our second Bible reading now. Thanks, Caroline. Starting at verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, "Mm, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who built, who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They built, beat one, killed another and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time 
and the tenants treated them then in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when that owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretcheds to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go into the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wearing wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Okay, so the king finished at the temple dealing with the parasites and the gatekeepers, making everybody feel welcome in this place where they can approach God. He's not there to confront the leaders at first. He's there to show mercy to the people. But he returns with a vengeance, doesn't he? He's back the next morning to sort out these leaders with a bit of teaching. They confront him, of course, straight away, questioning that authority. Verse 23, it's incredibly smug when you think about it. Because at this point, it's pretty much an accident of history that these particular people occupy these positions of power. They weren't appointed by Moses or David. And here they are, questioning the man who just marched into Jerusalem as king. After the big reveal in any episode of Undercover Boss, none of the incompetent, power-tripping middle managers double down, do they? They know the jig is up. They realise that real authority has arrived. But not this lot. Not this lot. 
They think their fancy charade actually makes them important and they try to undermine Jesus. He brushes them off with a single question, that's verse 24 and and following. And their response shows that they are little more than self-interested populists worried about the crowds, verse 25 and 26. So then after that, after undermining them, Jesus turns the tables with three parables that pull apart their smugness, their presumptions. The first one illustrates the most basic principle about access to God. The second one indicts these leaders. And the third one has something to say to the whole nation. So the first one, this general principle, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? There's a son, he's disobedient, but he realizes his error. He repents, and by the end he is obedient, verse 29. And then there's a son who pays lip service to his father, a hypocrite, self-important, self-assured, disrespectful, smug, verse 30. So in the following verses, Jesus leaves no room for misunderstanding here. The unbelief of the powerful condemns them, while God mercifully welcomes anyone who is repentant. The second parable, verses 33 to 40, gets pretty specific. Uh, Let's see the story for what it is. The master in this story is God, the creator. The vineyard is creation, and especially God's people. And the tenant farmers who he lends it out to, they're the leaders and the stewards put in charge of things. The fruit they are supposed to produce is worship and faith to the one true God. And the servants, the master sends to the prophets, calling Israel to be faithful. But Israel kills them all. God sends his son, and they kill him too, supposing that they can usurp even God himself. But God comes in terrible judgment. Then, in verse 41, Jesus asks the leaders what they think will happen. And this is the beauty of parables. This is part of why Jesus does it. Without realizing it, they're condemning themselves they answer correctly. When the master comes, he will execute them and replace them. So what's the point? The religious elite smugly presume that their worldly station actually reflects real power. But that will be shown for what it really is when the master comes. Jesus has outplayed them. They condemn themselves, and then in verses um, 42 to 44, he puts the final nail in the coffin by turning to the scriptures a source of authority that even these leaders won't be able to argue with very effectively. Verse 42 is a messianic prophecy. And Jesus claims it for himself. These leaders have seen Jesus' miracles. They've seen the healings. They've seen his teaching with authority. They've seen the fulfillment of prophecy. They've seen the adoration of the crowds. The cornerstone, the king, stands before them. They are the builders but they are too smug. They should be the ones conducting the worship of the Messiah, of the King. That's the fruit they fail to produce. And so, verse 43, God will replace them. We skipped it earlier, you might have noticed, but that's, of course, the whole point of Jesus cursing the fig tree as well. No fruit gets cursed. If these elite have no faithfulness, no belief, then God owes them nothing just because they're Jews? Nothing. God sends out his servants, the prophets, but, verse 5, God's people, sorry, I've skipped a bit here. Let me find my place. (laughs) 
All right, so God owes them nothing. They don't realize it, but their very schemes that you see at the end there to arrest him and execute him, that's going to fulfill the first part of what Jesus says in verse 44. They will fall on the stone. And the second part is weird at first until you realize that it anticipates Jesus' resurrection when the stone will then fall on them in crushing judgment. So, then the third parable. We're into chapter 22 now, first 14 verses, and it's got three parts. In the first six verses, the king, who is God, is trying to celebrate his son. And he's trying to invite to celebrate his son those who are supposed to love him and revere him and serve him. He's their king. So what Jesus is talking about here is the Jews. God sent out his servants, the prophets, but, verse 5, God's people, who should know better, they're just not interested They are preoccupied with their own affairs. Off they go to their farms and their businesses, more concerned with the here and now. Verse six, the rest, we might suppose, is the leaders again. They don't have farms and businesses. They've got time on their hands, time to mock and kill the prophets. Okay. So they have to, no, sorry. Things escalate after this, that's the first part. We get to that part, they mock and kill the prophets, but then things escalate. God's son is going to be celebrated and nothing is going to get in the way of that. So, it's no longer just Israel who are welcomed to this celebration. Verses 9 and 10, anyone, everyone is invited. Go out to the roadways, bring them all in. The welcome is thrown wide open. It says this funny thing, to the good and the bad, that's who's supposed to be invited, Um, but actually that's just a way of saying... Um, both good God's people and actually people who don't know God. They are all invited. They're all welcome. And where those who should know better have rejected the invitation to this wonderful celebration of this wonderful king and his son, the celebration is soon packed with anybody who will humbly accept it. That's the second part. Lastly, there's a dress code, verses 11 to 14. In other words, everyone's invited, but it's still God's party, and he gets to set the rules. Everyone is welcome, but they must come on God's terms. We all know people that know the rules, yet disregard them flagrantly, as if they're above it all, right? We don't look kindly on it, so why would God? Some will want to see in these verses the garments washed white in the blood of the Lamb from Revelation 7, and that's fine, although I think Matthew's point is probably a simpler one here. Will we respond to God on his terms? Okay, let's recap. Jesus comes out boldly, publicly, as the prophesied king. And as king, access to God is core business. Mercifully, Jesus blows apart the decorum and the perversion and all the barriers at the temple, dealing with the gatekeepers, pulling down blockages to people approaching God. Then lastly, Jesus puts a bunch of smug officials in their place. He teaches with real authority. He ignores their silly charade. Let's spend these last few minutes thinking about how this cuts for us. And firstly, let's recognize something that is worthy of great praise and thanksgiving. We here aren't rejecting the cornerstone at Trinity Orgate. This is a church that calls Jesus Lord and Savior, a church that works hard to know him and love him and obey him. We're not perfect, that's not what I'm saying, but we recognize who the king is. Though many of us once went our own way, we have repented, like the first son in the first parable. 
We here are not the religious elite from this passage and our assurance is not being called into question here. Praise God. But we don't want to keep the indictments at arm's length. This passage probably has implications for other religions who claim to know God and claim to be able to provide access to him. We could even talk about you know, heretical Christian sects that do the same thing, maybe Mormons, Christadelphians, that type of thing. But again, it's a little too easy, keeps it at arm's length, keeps it at a comfortable distance. In order to get personal, we need to extend some of the principles a bit. So I want to pick up on this idea of gatekeeping, this thing that Jesus hates so much, these barriers, and I want to see if maybe we can be guilty of it sometimes. We don't have a temple here, to gatekeep, of course. Actually, there's no temple in the world that is the one access point to God anymore. And like I said before here, you know, we are not, this, we and our leaders and our church, we're not a religious elite. But the way we express our views on a whole bunch of things can come across as though we possess you know, the one Christian truth. That's how a lot of our nation sees the church these days. All these little in-crowds mostly concerned about their own you know, very particular little idea of what is true. And if church, this church even, is a place where people can come to hear about, to meet with, to experience, to approach God, whether that's for the first time ever or if it's because they're trying to find a home to worship, then our culture here can send strong signals about who is welcome and who is not. So I want to briefly discuss a couple ways that I reckon we can fall into a bit of gatekeeping without necessarily meaning to. And the first has to do with things we stand for publicly, and the second has to do with ways we do church. So first, our public face. I think Christians are frequently known in public for what they're against, not what they're for. Like the priests and scribes and the whole religious establishment in Jerusalem, they were like that. For them, it was maintaining decorum, enforcing the rules, keeping out the undesirables, maneuvering for social and political gain and benefit. That's what they were on about. A watching world back then did not see in them the beauty and the splendor and the goodness and the grace of God. For us, I think this happens a lot with the culture wars. When abortion or gender and sexuality issues or religious freedoms come up in conversation, do you ever feel compelled to make sure that everyone knows where you stand on that as a Christian? I think some of us have been taught that doing so makes us brave and means we're standing up for Jesus and standing up for the truth. I'm not saying that our positions on those things are wrong, by the way. But if we're at a point where doing so actually just shuts down conversation and it makes people immediately think that we're insensitive, we're ignorant, we're bigoted, is that worth it anymore? It's not a comment on the truthfulness of, of any of the positions. But do you think if we present ourselves that way, that we're helping people who might be struggling with any of those issues to feel as though they could come to a church, to feel as though they could come to our church and find out what God thinks about all of this? So are we really putting ourselves out there for what matters most? Because there were legitimate reasons for a lot of the regulations going on at the temple, yet Jesus, when he confronts all of the stuff going on there, he doesn't feel any compulsion to signal or defend his orthodoxy. 
The prophet Hosea, who Jesus quotes twice previously in, in this book, says of God, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. At the temple, Jesus was perfectly comfortable with, there being, with the main thing that anybody saw just being his mercy, his welcome, his compassion. Wouldn't it be incredible if mercy was the main thing that the church in Australia was known for, if it was the main thing that Trinity Allgate was known for? I heard Sam Albury speaking in Adelaide years ago, and he said this. He said that if a Christian can't communicate a compelling vision of God's plan for things like gender and sexuality, communicated in purely positive and beautiful terms, they shouldn't bother saying anything. I reckon the principle holds true for a whole range of other controversial topics that Christians are often known for the most. It's not about compromising on the truth. It's just a question of time and place and making sure that everyone feels welcome in churches and in our church. I think that's way more important than making sure that the whole world knows what we disagree with. What about how we do church? Our traditions, that sort of thing. Traditions and ways of doing things, that helps us to you know, ensure that we're sticking to the right path, can make us feel secure, and I think that's fine. That's why we kind of develop them. That's why they emerge over time. They, they do help us in that way. They are genuine expressions of our faithfulness here, but they're not the measure of our faithfulness here. And so if we end up using the way we do things as like the measuring stick that for sort of analysing what other Christian traditions and what other churches are on about, we're going to find ourselves doing some gatekeeping. And just in case some people are wondering, even churches like ours, evangelicals in a community hall wearing shorts and thongs, we do have traditions. Dressing down is still a dress standard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Our preaching style, we might love it. It wasn't lifted directly from the pages of the Bible. Our patterns of discipleship and spiritual disciplines and this sort of thing, also good, but they owe more in their forms to uh, developments in the 19th century than to the 1st century. It's all good stuff. They are wonderful expressions of our love for Jesus and our attempt to obey him in this world, but they're not the measure of our faithfulness. Other churches express similar beliefs and experience God genuinely, but with vastly different traditions, and plenty of them are drawing people to Jesus. It's not uncommon for an evangelical to believe that a high or liturgical church is spiritually dead. Friends, that's nonsense. It's sometimes true. Maybe it's even often true, but it's not necessarily true. The prolific evangelical scholar and church leader, Peter Adam, over in Melbourne, he gives thanks for the Book of Common Prayer, that dusty old 16th century relic. Why? Because he says it has and still does disciple countless thousands of high Anglicans to maturity, and it is a faithful expression of their love for Jesus. On a different idea, it's, it's not uncommon for us maybe to think that people who aren't culturally or socially conservative aren't mature Christians, as though conformity were the measure of true love for Jesus. In the mission field, for example, this looks like several centuries of replicating European Christendom across the global south. It's almost as though fancy hats and frocks and hymnals came straight from Paul the Apostle. <laughs> we can do the same in our churches in some smaller, more subtle ways when we encounter diversities in personality or temperament or vocation or lifestyle or self-expression. 
And this is especially powerful when our minds are filled up with ignorant or uncharitable caricatures. I think it boils down to the belief that we can judge what people's heart before God is like based on external things. Very few of us think this explicitly, but the culture can emerge, it emerges, that, that communicates that being faithful kind of is like doing and being and looking mostly like we do. I've watched this type of dynamic drive people away from churches, broken people who wanted to approach God and experience his mercy. No one was explicitly judging them, but they just never felt welcome. Nobody meant to do it, but gatekeeping was in full effect. So what I want us to do is just be aware that this happens. It it can happen here too. Don't obsess about it. And don't feel self-conscious about what we're like. It's okay, like I said, the way we do things. Faithful expressions of our love for Jesus. So not obsessed about it, but not taking for granted that our culture is always as welcoming as we hope that it is. Don't take it for granted. We want to work at that and be aware of it. It's not the hardness of heart, the unbelief of the priests and the scribes from the passage today. Praise God. That's not what's going on here at Trinity All Gate. But we can create barriers to people finding and experiencing God. And we just want to be aware of that. So let's pray for humility and self-awareness. Let's pray for the sort of faith that is secure and sincere, but not casual, not smug. Let's pray that we don't intentionally or accidentally create barriers to people being able to come here and encounter God. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, your Son, the Lord Jesus, as King, made it his core business to tear down barriers. He wanted the world to see in him that all are welcome to know God if they come with humble and repentant hearts. We all believe that here. We love you for it. It's why we're here. It's what we worship you for. We pray that you would just help us to be careful and thoughtful and sensitive about the way we do things at our church, the way we express ourselves uh, in public or to friends and family. We don't want to be seen as people who are against things. We want to be seen as a people and a church who are for the Lord Jesus in all of his magnificence and goodness and beauty and grace and welcome. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.